Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to Between the Lines with Virtual Academy, our podcast going beyond the bads to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson. Our episode today, I think it's going to be a master class in conflict resolution. And although our guest was a hostage negotiator for the FBI, I think all of us will walk away from the episode with a broader understanding of some of the tactics we can use to de-escalate a situation, whether that's in the form of a suspect you're dealing with in your law enforcement career, or even if you're a Joe Blow like me on a personal lever and you find yourself arguing with your spouse, your coworker, whatever your walk of life is, some incredible insight in store for you today. But before we bring in our guests, allow me to introduce our host, He is the Johnny Cash of Virtual Academy because he has been everywhere. I'm always home. He's never home. He's actually in our Franklin office today. Mr. Michael Warren, how are you, sir? I'm doing good, man. How are you today? Very excited. I was uh, talking with our guest before we started recording that uh, I just realized he was one of the negotiators and one of my favorite episodes of FBI Files. So this is like... You know, some people get excited about actors and musicians and me. I like these true crime shows and things like that. So this is a big deal for me. I'm like you. I, I, I hate to sound like a dork, but I do it do it often and do it well. I, I get excited meeting people that I consider to be legends of the profession that I love. And, and that's what we're going to get to do today. And I cannot wait to hear some of his experiences. So let's go and get started. What can you tell me about him? Well, our guest today retired from the FBI in 2003, following a 30-year career as an investigator, instructor, and negotiator. In 2010, he released a book about his FBI negotiation career titled Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, which, by the way, would make a fantastic gift idea this holiday season. Parts of the book were used as the basis for the 2018 miniseries Waco. As a matter of fact, actor Michael Shannon portrays him in that series. I actually just finished watching it last night. He continues to consult independently and speaks at law enforcement conferences and corporate gatherings around the world. It is our pleasure to welcome Gary Nesner to Between the Lines. Thank you for joining us, sir. That's pleasure for me to be here with you guys. Hey, Gary, I'm going to I'm going to give you a heads up, man. I'm, I'm probably going to go overboard today because I'm super excited to be able to talk to you, man, to be able to talk to a legend of law enforcement. Um, feel free to tell me to back down. No problem. I want to talk to you about the beginning of your career. You had a 30 year career. That's a long time. Why the FBI? Well, you know, as, as a young kid um, watched a show about uh, that mentioned the FBI and talked about some of the exciting things that FBI agents did chasing spies and gangsters and uh, organized crime and all that sort of thing and, and uh, working bank robberies. And it really appealed to me. You know, I mentioned it to my mother when she came home from work and she went out and bought me a, a kid's book about the FBI. And, you know, I read it and it, it sort of became my my dream and my life goal. And, you know, it's something I always wanted to do. And uh, eventually it, it worked out for me and uh, certainly lived up to all my expectations. And, you know, I really enjoyed my career. It was uh, fascinating in so many ways. I got to do things and go places that normal people just don't get to do. I, I tell you what, when your dream and reality come together and they match, that's something magical. Yeah. When you finished the academy, what, where was your first assignment at? Well, I was assigned to South Carolina, uh, Columbia, South Carolina, the capital of the state, right in the center of the state. And I was so fortunate, instead of working some background investigative things, they put me on a fugitive squad right away. So I got to go out with experienced agents and arrest bad guys, you know, who had uh, been found in South Carolina after having committed crimes all over the United States. And we would go out and arrest them and ship them back to where they uh, did their crime. And... Uh, 
that was just really exciting and, you know, really got your blood flowing and your heart beating. And uh, so I really enjoyed that a lot. And I learned a lot about working with local police and, and, and learned a lot from agents who, who had far more experience than I did. But unfortunately, after a couple of years there, the FBI decided they needed me in Washington uh, at the field office there. And I began to work foreign counterintelligence uh, for some years and then uh, was able to get on a terrorism squad, which is then it was uh, a very new and emerging thing. And we had a squad handling Middle East matters. And we ended up working a lot of overseas hijackings, just a small group of us. And uh, now if some some Middle East Terrorism Act occurred, there's 100 agents on it. I, I had five major cases assigned to me <laughs> alone back in those days. It was quite different. The last big case I worked in the field was the, the Lockerbie situation over Scotland. And I went over there for that. And then uh, after that, I, um, you know, my wife uh, felt that she she'd like to see me now and again and uh, and help raise the three children. So I said, "Don't worry, I got this job as a full time negotiator. I've been doing it part time at the FBI Academy, and um, yeah, I won't be traveling as much." Well, that that was probably the biggest lie I ever told her because my <laughs> my travel only uh, only greatly increased and. Uh, and the demands on my time. But it was all a, a very rewarding uh, and interesting career, to say the least. Just to, for context for our listeners, when you first started, FBI agents didn't carry a lot of equipment. I mean, <laughs> if, I, if I'm not mistaken, you guys carried your sidearm, your credentials. There wasn't a whole lot else. Would that be accurate? Well, to some extent, I mean, because I was working fugitives, I always had a set of handcuffs on me. And we had, you know, <laughs> a, a modicum amount of additional rounds um, and yeah, that was about it. You know, um, when I worked uh, fugitives, uh, we also I carried a slapjack in case we had some fisticuffs and I never really had to use it on anyone. But we did wrestle around a little bit from time to time and got into a few situations that could have ended very badly. But, you know, made it through that and learned a lot about working on the streets with uh, local police and uh, learned a great deal from local detectives and and from older FBI agents. And, you know, those those lessons served me well throughout the the remaining majority of my career. Well, and, and that's kind of what I was uh, getting at right there is that today in law enforcement, we have a wide variety of tools that, that are available to us that we can carry to kind of handle that, that part in between going hands-on shooting somebody. And sometimes I think it can be detrimental because we lose that ability or we don't increase our skill in talking with people. You know, Michael, that's a very, very good point. And I, I often tell a story that, uh, and I won't name names, but there were two particular senior FBI agents I worked with on my first assignment going after fugitives. And one guy just seemed to get us in trouble all the time. He just he just had this personality where he pissed people off. And, you know, and I I only owned about three suits then and, and you know, my cheap Sears or JCPenney suits, whatever they were. You know, and after a while, you say, you know, I'm getting tired of uh, having this thing sewn up and uh, and repaired because we fight somebody uh, during the arrest. And then I worked with another agent who was actually a bigger, tougher guy, a former college football player. But he really knew how to talk to people and get compliance and convince them to cooperate. It didn't take me too long to, to decide which person provided a better model for me in terms of <laughs> how I wanted to be. And and so, you know, I think like most professions, I'm sure it was true in yours, you know, you, you try to find good mentors. And um, I mean, that's really a big key to life. You know, whenever I got an assignment in the FBI, I always said, well, who's the best person here? Who's the person that is most well-regarded, looked up to and successful? Well, that's the person I tried to get close to and learn from. Not that you don't learn things the other way from people who are uh, provide a different kind of an example, but 
you know, I think finding someone that is really good at what they do and being smart enough to listen to their advice and it can accelerate your preparedness to do whatever task you have. There's no sense going back and learning lessons learned if I can learn them from somebody who's learned them. And, yeah. and I think that perhaps that's missing somewhat in law enforcement today. And, and another thing I wanted to allude to, because and my kids are like this, that I don't think that they recognize how big of an issue hijacking was back in the day. They occurred a lot more frequently than they do today. Well, they did. Yeah. I mean, uh, and even before I got in the FBI, the, uh, you know, there was a, just a ton of hijackings to Cuba. And, uh, you know, we, we got a, quite a bit of practice doing those. And of course, in those, fortunately, most of those were the person wanted to get from point A to point B. In those cases, they want to get back to Cuba. And they typically ended well with passengers being released, planes being flown back and bad guys being arrested over there. But, you know, then the Middle East folks, the Palestinian terrorism and so forth, begin to, you know, expand the use of, of hijackings abroad. So I case I worked on five years was the TW-847 hijacking and the Pan Am 73 and Kuwaiti 442 and on and on and on. And it was a really big issue and uh, a, a real challenging one in so many ways. And the United States back in 85, Congress passed a law that basically said if you kidnap or hold an American hostage anywhere in the world that we're going to investigate it. Now, our ability to do that was much dependent upon the host country allowing us in, but they typically did. So all of a sudden, FBI agents who typically would not travel overseas, uh, you know, I was on a small squad of people that we, it became our, uh, you know, our practically our second home, you know, working on cases in, uh, in the Middle East and Europe. So it was uh, quite an interesting experience to say the least uh, fairly early in my career. You talked about uh, Lockerbie. Yeah, that was the last big one I worked in. The complexity of an investigation like that, you're working away from home, the amount of physical evidence that's collected, that had to be intriguing for somebody that like you. Because it seems like you're a guy that, that likes that type of challenge. Well, certainly, you know, and I mean, Scottish police, uh, you know, very small in comparison to to the FBI, but they did a really great job. And when I went over there and, and spent some time helping out, I was very impressed. Um, you know, one of the first days in the command post, this little old lady serving coffee. And, and they asked me if I knew who she was. And I said, I have no idea who that is. And she said, well, <laughs> she had her grandchildren in her living room right here in the village. And her daughter came to pick up the kids and daughter takes the kids and mom goes to the bedroom. And literally minutes later, you know, f I think it was 14 students from Syracuse University end up in her living room, you know, that fell out of the sky. I mean, the kind of thing that you know, just, you don't forget. They had a huge warehouse over there. I think it was a school gymnasium. And it was just full of tables with children's Christmas gifts and children's clothes and purses. And they had it all segregated into what the item was. And seeing that for the first time gave you a sense of the humanity of the, the you know, the, the many, many people who died in that tragedy. And I had been on that same flight a week prior. You know, things like that make you think. They certainly bring things into focus and, and take things from the, the world of the abstract into the world of, of concrete. It, it becomes real. But you had alluded to the fact that at some point uh, you got into the, the negotiation side of things. How, how did that happen? What, what brought you there? Yeah, early in my tenure in the FBI, I, you know, the FBI was pretty good in those days about providing some insight into what are some of the up and coming things were. And I remember being in a lecture and somebody mentioned this thing called hostage negotiations. And uh, it had been started by NYPD, you know, Frank Boltz and Harvey Schlossberg. Uh, I always give them the credit they're due. They started that in the mid 70s as sort of a, you know, a, a better way to resolve conflict. You know, up to that point in time, we said, come out. The bad guy said, no, we went in and got him. 
I mean, that was kind of the toolkit. But they came up with let's contain and open a dialogue and try to defuse this thing and get these people to cooperate. Well, the FBI recognized it immediately as a pretty damn good approach. And we began to kind of fine tune it because we had a lot more resources and psychologists and so forth to really pick it apart. And we began to teach it around the United States and around the world. And so it was pretty darn new thing when I got involved. And something about it just intrigued me, you know, using communication skills to to diffuse incidents and gain cooperation. And so I, I got the training as soon as I could. And, um, you know, for the first 10 years, I was doing all these overseas hijacking cases and I'm coming home and teaching negotiation courses to the police. I'm responding and helping on some of their situations. So why Mrs. Nessner stuck through all this is is one of the world's <laughs> great, great un, unknown questions or our, our mysteries, I should say. And then in 1990, you know, after the Lockerbie thing, I I'd kind of gotten burned out a bit on all these overseas things. And uh, they asked me at that same time to be one of the only two full-time negotiators in the FBI uh, based out of Quantico. And uh, we were an operational unit, but we were based at, at the academy. And there were 350 negotiators in the FBI, but only two of them were full-time. So I became one of those. And after the Waco incident in 93, I became uh, the chief negotiator and, and did that for the final 10 years of my career. So, you know, these things happen more by serendipity than they do by by design. But, uh, you know, I always found negotiations, and, and I still do. I've been doing it now 40 42 years or something like that. It's just a fascinating thing. And you mentioned earlier, Michael, about equipment in law enforcement. You know, and I'm sure this is true with your own experience, uh, the police departments understandably spend an inordinate amount of time on firearms training. It's it's a critical skill. And I, and I don't begrudge a minute of that training. But we really don't spend a lot of training on communication skills. And, you know, if you've and for anybody out there that's listening, that's been an officer, a police officer on the street who engages with the public, both in the good and the bad sense, man, those are life-saving tools that, that you, you need to, to have if, if you're going to really be effective as a law enforcement officer. You've got to be able to communicate with people and, number one, avoid problems. But when they arise, try to defuse them without going to the use of force. It's a skill that has to be developed and maintained. My background uh, I was I was a trainer. I, I, I like doing research. And the truth of the matter is, if we fail to train or fail to train properly under stress, it doesn't really become an option yeah. for our men and women out there on the street. So we have to do it. But I, I do have to go back for a second. And, and I think this is important for our listeners. Hostage negotiations is a relatively new tactic. I mean, in the grand scheme of things. I, I think that's right. And, 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 it, and it translates beyond merely diffusing a hostage barricade suicide situation. It relates, you know, a police officer's job is basically about getting information, whether we get cooperation from a witness, whether we get a confession from a perpetrator, you know, whatever it might be, it's gaining cooperation and information. Well, we know and we've learned that equipping police officers with, you know, really good communication skills is the best pathway to that. And I really think we should devote more time to that. You know, we we talk a good game in the FBI and law enforcement. We will use no more force than is absolutely necessary. But yeah, we don't always live up to that. You know, we are human beings. And when particularly perpetrators, bad guys, particularly unlikable bad guys, <laughs> piss us off, we take it personally. You know, well, I tried talking to you nice. So you want to do this the hard way? Here we go. And, and sometimes we let our emotions get the best of us. 
you know, but it's the old saying about you, you get you get more with honey than vinegar, you know. While we always have to be prepared to exercise force to protect ourselves or someone else, you know, that should clearly be in keeping with our philosophy. Of it is the action of last recourse. We don't start off with violently and then go to negotiations. It's the other way around. It's a progression. You know, we try to use the least amount of confrontation and force to accomplish the task. And I always say when situations end badly, and as we know, they do sometimes, uh, it's always been a pet peeve of mine, Michael. Police chiefs, particularly and FBI special agents will say negotiations failed. So we had to take action. I hate yes. that because negotiations Me never too. fails. What fails is the perpetrator failed to make the right decision, failed to behave in the right way. But the fact that we tried to communicate uh, is not a failure. And in fact, it's probably bought us time to assemble more resources, gather more information, come up with a plan, and be more effective in what tactical action we may ultimately have to take. So I've always, it's always really been kind of sat in my craw when somebody says, well, negotiations failed. You know, well, no, they didn't. You know, uh, they, they always work. That's always, that should always be our default. We should always try talk before we feel we have to use force. Gary, I've always heard that the, the sign of somebody's intelligence is how much they agree with you. <laughs> One of the things that... You, you have that same approach, I see. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could say I had it more often during my career. Yeah. It's you know one of those things that's gained with experience and age and research. We are emotional beings. And Dr. Henry Thompson in his book, The Stress Effect, he talks about the, the secret is to have emotions without being had by your emotions. I think a lot of times we're had by our emotions because we aren't trained properly. And so that, that's the first thing. Uh, the second thing is we have got as a profession to stop judging outcomes and rather start judging things by the process because the bad guy always gets a vote in what happens. Yeah. Just because they made the decision to escalate things does not mean that we failed in our efforts not to escalate things. It just means that we weren't able to convince him. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. You know, the very first thing I, I teach when I teach a negotiation course, which is pretty rare these days, it's uh, self-control. The premise being that if, if you can't control your own emotions, how can you expect to influence somebody else? And, you know, when you look at it and break it down to its essentials, probably the only thing you actually do control is yourself. You know, we try to influence, persuade, convince the person to do what we legitimately feel is in his best interest. That's to not harm himself or anybody else and surrender. We always think that's in their best interest. But at the end of the day, we can try to influence that. And we're very successful. Negotiations is probably one of the most successful things that have evolved in law enforcement. We're in the 90 percentile, but we're not always able to get that person to act in a reasonable or appropriate way. My former partner and I in a training company, we wrote a class on de-escalation and it was our belief that we do ourselves a disservice as a profession when we use de-escalation as a verb yeah. because de-escalation is an outcome. If we view it as a verb, that means it's something we can do to somebody else. And then if we have to use force, that's a sign that we failed in our efforts. Sometimes our people can do everything right and things still end up jacked up. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not going to suggest there aren't negotiations that occur where we could have done better or, you know, whoever's on the, the phone or talking around the barricade or whatever isn't always performing at the highest level. But what I found that comes across is, is the sincere and genuine effort projected by the communicator, the negotiator, that we're there to, to try to resolve this peacefully. We don't want to hurt you. We don't want to make a bad day worse for you. 
And that comes through. You know, I got in the habit throughout my career of asking perpetrators who surrendered, what did we say that made you come out? I mean, that's a critical question. We want to know that, right? We want to apply those lessons for future incidents. And you know, the answer was always the same in one form or another. And the answer was this, and it's very interesting. I don't remember what you said, but I like the way you said it. That is exactly the reason why I remember that episode of FBI Files. (laughs) I watched this. I don't know what you said during that that reenactment there, but I remember your tone, your rapport with this person. You treated him, even though it was a crazy situation, you treated him like he was a human being. Even though there was this craziness going around, it's like you guys knew each other for years. Your tone, the way you talked to him, that's exactly what I took away. Well, you know, Brent, even the most incorrigible person in the world wants to be respected and treated, you know, in a fair and humane way. And it's it's a very minor concession we make. You know, we're patient. We listen to him. You know, there's a big difference between, I'll give you two examples. Here's example A. Sir, my name's Gary Nessner. I'm here to get this situation resolved. I need you to put that gun down and come on out right now. That's the Jack Webb uh, dragnet model, you know, but but instead, <laughs> and that's what the guy expects. That's what he expects to hear from the cops. He probably has a history with police that hasn't been exactly warm and fuzzy. So we come in and say, hey, you know, Brent, I'm, I'm Gary. I'm with the police department. And, uh, you know, I'd like to try to help you get out of this situation. I know uh, it seems like you're having a really tough day and having an argument with your wife in there, your employer, whatever it might be. And, uh you know, I'd really like to try to work with you, see if we can't get this resolved. Now, I mean, you see, you can just see the the, the two perhaps uh, f- phony demonstrations of of the different approaches. But that's what kind of works. Now, I'm not saying you have to make this guy your best friend for life or have him over for Thanksgiving dinner, but show him some respect. Don't make a bad situation worse. I, I know this is audio, this podcast, not video, but if the, if the listener can Imagine a child playground teeter-totter. And when one child is up, the other child is down. That's physics. You can't dispute that and vice versa. Well, what I like to illustrate is if you can picture in your mind that the child that's up high represents emotion. And the child on the, the seat that's on the ground is rational thinking and behavior. Now, before we can come to a point where that rational and behavior and thinking increases, we have to lower the emotional content. And I know you guys can see it on the video and the listeners can't, but if you can imagine that, our first goal is not to come up with a brilliant solution. Sir, I've been here two minutes and I understand all your world problems and here's the solution. You know, we're not there yet. We have to first engage with this person using our communication skills, uh, good listening skills, to get that emotional level to lower. And when we do, you see what comes up in corresponding way. And that's their ability to now think a little bit more clearly, no longer have this tunnel vision. The only way I can get out of this is kill my boss. Well, you know, that's not going to get you your job back. And you can say that to them in the first minute, but it's not going to sink in until you've demonstrated as a negotiator that, hey, you know, I'm a decent guy. I'm not here to criticize you or to make your day worse. I'm here to try to help you get through this. And it's a tremendously successful tool. There's some people who are quite natural at this, and whether they've been trained or not, others will probably never be good at it. <laughs> uh, but, but the vast majority of us, you know, if we focus our, our energy and, and learn some of these approaches, we, we can really step up our game. We also speak about it from a law enforcement perspective, from the officer side of things, that 
controlling the emotions. It's not enough to be emotionally intelligent. You must be emotionally disciplined. Part of that is recognizing that as the stress level goes up, the more emotions try to take over your decision-making process. Yeah. We have professional escalators in our profession. Yeah, we do. That's unfortunate. You said something earlier that I was going to respond to about, I think, something along the lines of how, how do you keep how does a negotiator keep his emotions in check? And it's not a matter of you don't have the emotions. It's a matter that you learn how to control them. And the analogy I'll use is the three of us are walking down the street and we witness this horrendous traffic accident and somebody has lost a leg. We're all kind of in shock and, you know, because it's not the kind of thing that we see. And we may even be momentarily paralyzed with what to do, if anything. Our fourth companion, a trauma surgeon, just goes right to work. And it's not that he feels any less of an emotional shock than we do, but he's learned how to control it. And he's learned how to deal with it and go ahead and get his job done. That's what, you know, allows a medic in a combat situation to attend to somebody. You know, and that's kind of what a negotiator does. It's not that I don't feel the threat to this child that this man is threatening to kill or this wife that he's holding, or this employer that he's angry at, or this hostage he's trying to kill in the bank. But we have to put that aside and say, this is where our focus and and our attention needs to be. Now, an incident ends tragically, and I've been involved in a number of those. You go home and you, you you work it out, and you talk to your colleagues, and you get help if you need it. But during the incident, There's lives to be saved and uh, a job to be done, and we have to focus on that with all our energy. At Virtual Academy, we're helping our clients build better prepared public safety professionals by offering high-level training provided by engaging national experts. With hundreds of hours of training available instantly, Virtual Academy offers the functionality your officers need so they can train as their schedules permit. Find out how Virtual Academy can meet the needs of your agency today. Visit virtualacademy.com for a complete list of courses, training resources, and more. Virtual Academy, because you deserve more. If I could, I want to ask you, did did you happen to become involved in the incident at Ruby Ridge? I was not. Now, the, the television show that you both just watched, it shows my character being there. I was not. I was out of the country during Ruby Ridge, which happened several months before Waco. My partner was there, though, but they needed to get Michael Shannon, who played me in the Waco part of the series. They needed to get him. He's the big star. They needed to get him in the first episode. So they said, Gary, we're putting you at Ruby Ridge. I wasn't particularly happy about that. But, you know, what I learned is when you sell your book rights, you sell your book rights and uh, creative license, what they call that. Yeah. <laughs> Let me ask you a professional question sure. because, because a negotiator comes into the middle of a stressful emotion packed incident like Ruby Ridge. Mm. And that stress and emotion isn't just on the part of the people that we're dealing with. It's also on the law enforcement side. How does a professional come in and not allow themselves to get jacked up before they even start the dialogue with the person who's also jacked up and emotional. Again, part of it's the personality types who are attracted to become negotiators and who end up sticking with it and, and are successful. And then it's the sort of training that I alluded to earlier where, you know, through all the exercises and the real instance you go through, you learn to discipline yourself to, to not overreact. You know, and you mentioned Ruby Ridge. And again, a clarification, I was, I was not there, but that was a horrific situation. I mean, it started off with there's a, a, a dead marshal. Weaver's son is killed. His son's dog is killed. He's wounded. Partner's wounded. His wife gets killed by an FBI marksman by mistake. 
And now the negotiators show up and say, hey, let's be friends and come on out. Well, I mean, that's just like an impossible task. But I have to tell you, the negotiators there were great. They brought about a negotiated resolution after eight days. Now, they did that in part with the help of an intermediary. But it still shows you that even in the most horrific of circumstances, if really done well, these skill sets can still be quite successful. And what's the alternative? Charging into a cabin like that with, you know, a guy with gun and more kids. And I mean, it's just untenable. So you really don't have much of a choice, but but they were able to find a solution and people are alive today because of that. And, you know, again, it comes down to everybody remembers the tragedy out there. And I'm not saying they shouldn't. It's a shame that because of the way it ended, same thing with Waco, there were some great negotiations there that never really got the, the attention that they deserved because of the, the ultimate outcome. That's, again, the outcome versus the process. Yeah. Th- th- there was still a tragedy at both of those events, but the tragedy was mitigated. And I don't think that that, that, that can be argued that if there hadn't have been those efforts it would have been much worse because the alternative is going in. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, I I mentioned they're making a second season uh, of the Waco series that was on Paramount. It'll be on, I just learned it'll be on Showtime next year. It's uh, sort of the aftermath of Waco and what happened, the Oklahoma City bombing and so forth. But Netflix is also coming out with a very comprehensive three-part documentary on Waco that, I think addresses a lot of these things we're talking about here, guys, you know, that really shows a lot of the really good work that the negotiation team did. And that's always been sort of a a bit of a sore point for me because Waco is the thing I'm the most affected by in my career, but it's also the thing I'm most proud of in terms of my negotiation team. We got we got 35 people out, including 21 children under pretty bad circumstances. And I would have liked to got a lot more out. I think we could have got a lot more out. I think some of the reason we didn't was based on some bad FBI decisions. But of course, ultimately, David Crash was a pretty bad guy. But still, those achievements, those patient efforts and initiatives that we engaged in, you know, never really got credit because of the way the thing ended. And I understand that. As someone who was responsible for defending my, my team and the good work that they did, I've always felt, sadly, that, that those efforts that they undertook were, were not sufficiently uh, given attention. They were overshadowed by other events, Indeed. but that doesn't diminish the value that they had and, and the role they played. So I want, I want to talk to you about Waco for a second, because I, I will tell you one of the, the things that I am absolutely blown away by was the length of time that this went on, mm-hmm. the, the, the length of time of your involvement, your team's involvement. How do you do that? <laughs> I, I mean, that's significant. Yeah. I mean, it becomes a, um, it becomes quite a logistical challenge. I mean, we had sometimes 10, 12, 14 negotiators on site uh, working 12 hour shifts. You know, the, the complexity of talking all day for 12 hours and then passing off to the next shift so that nothing gets lost in translation, preparing briefing papers and summaries and doing briefs. I mean, as the overall team leader, I split my time between the two shifts to be sort of a bridge. So I'm working 14, 16 hour days. You know, I literally for the first half that I was there, the first 26 days, I probably didn't get four hours sleep a night. So, and that's not optimal either, but there was no way around that. But uh, we had really good, good teams and we put in place some really good procedures for uh, sharing information with each other that have sort of become the standard in the negotiation industry today. I would think that one of the challenges as you're running your team there 
is ensuring that there's a seamless transition from shift to shift. Well, absolutely. Progress that is made. You know, one of the things we did to do that, we, we developed a thing we call position papers that periodically are produced that sort of sets forth, you know, where the situation stands, what our assessment of the situation is, and what our recommendations. That's all done on one sheet of paper. You know, it's short and sweet, something that we can, that I was able to fax up to FBI headquarters so that, you know, it didn't get to the director through 10 people and get totally distorted in terms of what we were doing and, and recommending. So we, we started using those. We had briefing paper or I orally briefed every team shift when I was there. You know, here's what we did in the morning. Here's the points we think you should continue to pursue. You know, and, and that's, uh, you know, some people say, well, why don't you go to eight hour shifts? Well, you know, the old parlor game about passing a secret and you're better off replacing the person that replaced you that back and forth. So we, we learned through the school of hard knocks how to do some things uh, that were fine tuned out there that become as again, negotiation industry standard now uh, that everybody uses, the way we set up a, a negotiation operations center. All of that sort of evolved and got fine-tuned at Waco. And I was only there the first half. I was viewed as uh, too resistant to uh, more aggressive tactical action. And I was, uh, I was replaced by uh, another person, and they took a, a more strident approach with the Davidians and no one else came out after the second half after I left nobody that kind of leads into a question for me have you noticed a shift where negotiations are being seen as a more best tactic to go for instead of just rushing in and trying to get it over with have you seen that that tide shift I think a bit you know in my early days as a negotiator we we were constantly fighting for that recognition because uh, commanders, both in the law enforcement, the FBI systems, were far more comfortable with tactical action. I mean, that was just the way most of them had come up through the ranks. And they understood that where negotiations was always looked at this gray and murky uh, voodoo science or whatever. They just didn't quite get that. But then, of course, we started having quite uh, significant successes, but we still had to fight the fights. You know, I always told my team, my biggest job as a negotiation coordinator not talking to the bad guy, that's pretty predictable. My biggest challenge was making sure the bosses were supporting what we were doing and not pursuing alternative, counterproductive, disruptive tactics, which is exactly what happened at Waco. You know, he, he would say, yes, negotiators do what you're doing. And then he tell the tactical commander, yeah, go forward and crush some cars. We'll show them. You know, never really quite appreciating, despite being told, how this sent mixed signals. And, you know, that's not the way negotiation works. What the perpetrator sees what they hear has to be consistent. You know, we as a law enforcement entity managing a situation have to speak with one voice and our actions have to be consistent and coordinated. And when you have two different approaches contradicting one to the other, it's a recipe for problems. And we certainly encountered that. Now, after Waco, I would say the negotiation program got a huge attentiveness. You know, the at Waco, the on-scene commander, the tactical commander were encouraged to re retire, and I got a promotion out of it. So the FBI said, hey, the negotiators had it right. We should have stuck with that. The power paradigm, for lack of a better way of putting it, kind of shifted more in the negotiations' favor, which it should. You know, and I'm not saying it because I'm biased about negotiations, right. but we should always default to nonviolence before we use force. It's it, it's a no-brainer. And like I say, we've always said that, but we haven't always lived up to it. But I, I worried that in the post-Columbine era that things have shifted back towards tactical orientation. Columbine and some school situations we just had at Uvalde, they certainly require immediate tactical intervention. 
But that doesn't mean every situation does. And we have to have the sophistication and the ability to discern what is a, an, an ongoing violent situation for which we need to intervene versus a stabilized, continuing dangerous situation where negotiations is the more appropriate tool that's more likely to bring about saving lives. So that requires a certain level of sophistication. And we in law enforcement tend, tend to glom on the one size fits all. And it could be an indicator of our society where we want it fast, done, over, onto the next thing instead of, well, no, we need to take our time and slow down here. We don't like to slow down. I don't like to slow down. So maybe that's just an indication of where we are. Well, if you stop to think about it from in the early days of an academy, every police officer and FBI agent is taught to identify a problem, solve the problem, and move on to the next problem. I mean, boom, boom, boom. That's how we're taught. That's how we think. And yet, these situations require slow down, take your time. Dr. Harvey Slosberg, when asked by commanders, what, what are you negotiators doing? Because they couldn't really discern what progress was being made. And, and he, he always used a quote that I always loved and copied. He, he said, well, we're engaged in dynamic inactivity. And uh, that, that term alone would convince the bosses that we had a specific strategy when we're doing what my book is titled, stalling for time, slowing it down, allowing the emotions to subside and uh, allowing an opportunity for a relationship to evolve and develop where we can begin to influence behavior. And it's, uh, it's quite proven. It's uh, quite effective. As we mentioned earlier, it's not 100%, but it's pretty darn good. You know, I think a law enforcement official today, chief, sheriff, special agent charge, who rushes into resolving a situation with tactics without really exhausting a dedicated negotiation effort is really running the risk of being second guessed in a court of law or a court of public opinion before you go in and engage in an activity that, that may likely lead to loss of life of a hostage, a victim, a perpetrator, a, a police officer. Why? What compelled you to do it? What changed from earlier? And if you can't answer those questions effectively, maybe you shouldn't do it. Those are important questions. A lot of times we, we don't. Don't. The old Maslow quote, you know, if, if you're a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Too often, we expend a great deal of time and money on tactical teams, which is, I'm not criticizing that. It's it just the nature of the beast. It's, it, it requires a lot of time, training, and equipment and a big budget. Well, because we have that capability, we, we tend to want to use it. And in contrast to that, well, I got this dopey old detective here who's overweight and, you know, he's got his little five shot on his belt and he's my negotiator and uh, it doesn't exude the same sort of uh, glamour, <laughs> you know, but it's the most effective tool we have. You brought up some points that I just want to hit on real quick if I could. Absolutely. Would you agree that, that we need to quit seeing the tactical side and the negotiation side instead of seeing it as an either or it should be viewed as an and. No question about that. And, and shame on me for not making that, that point earlier, uh, Mike, because that's so true. It's a continuum. You know, negotiations typically, particularly in a hostage situation, will be more effective because we have a subtle threat of the alternative. You know, the fact that the tactical guys are out there presenting a visible uh, potential harm to the perpetrator encourages them to talk to the nice negotiator and work out a solution. Because fortunately for us, in most situations, hostage situations particularly, the perpetrators want to live more than they want to die. So we don't have to be in your face, you know, cooperate with Gary or we're going to kill you. But the fact that the TAC team is out there is not an unknown quantity to him. And it, it's an incentive. But oftentimes, what's typically undervalued is the value that negotiations can bring to tactics. Brent mentioned this other incident that I was involved in that he saw another show on, the Sperryville incident, where I, as a negotiator, recommended tactical intervention to uh, to take out a, a man holding a woman and child hostage. 
Now, that's not the typical thing that the negotiator recommends, but I had to appreciate the fact that it was highly unlikely that I was going to succeed in getting him to cooperate and make the right decision. And that we stood a very high and increasing chance that the woman and possibly the child were going to be killed. Therefore, with that sort of evaluation, and I'm giving you the Reader's Digest version, I felt that drawing him out of the house where he was in so that our tactical snipers could take him out was the most risk-effective way to resolve it. And that's what they did. So what I'm saying is, even though I'm a huge proponent of negotiations, I don't feel as though that's the only solution. An on-scene commander needs to have a variety of tools in his or her toolbox. You know, it's not like, okay, I throw the hammer away, that didn't work, so now I'm going to use the megaphone. I mean, it all works in concert together and, and needs to be. I mean, the, the closest two people at the scene working with the commander should be the tactical commander and the negotiation coordinator. They should be lockstep right there with the on-scene commander. You, you could envision a stereotypical situation where the on-scene commander says, you know, to the negotiator, how are things going? And if the negotiator makes a compelling case to continue with what we're doing, then that should be the default. If, however, the negotiator says, you know, boss, this is unraveling, then he looks to the tactical commander and says, what, what are our options? Well, you know, I've got a sniper shot or we have a, an effective, uh, we think we have a risk-effective assault plan, whatever it is. Then that may mitigate towards making that decision. You've got to weigh both inputs and make the best decision you can that's most likely to achieve prevention of loss of life. And anything short of that, I think you're really opening yourself up for, for problems. Overemphasis on either one can create issues. And I think perhaps one of the things that we need to reframe as a profession is the concept of a bias for action. Because talking is an action. Mm -hmm. But too often we talk about a bias for action. It, it defaults to the tactical side of things. And there's some people listening the, that I work with early in my career. They're going, who is this Mike guy and what is he talking about? Because when I said bias reaction for a large part of my early career, it had nothing to do with talking. I can tell you that. But bias for action should be about doing the appropriate action for the situation right now. We have to really use our heads. You know, we have to really think clearly about what are we facing and what, what's the potential. And we, we don't always make the right decision, but we need to go through a process before we do something Let's ask the uh, pros and cons. You know, what's the what's the risk? What's the benefit? And if we don't put ourselves through, you know, it, when a police department has done something that ends tragically, as long as they've gone through that process first, you never hear a word of criticism from me. Okay, ultimately what they decided didn't work, but they ran through the possibilities. They discussed the pros and cons and the risks. And based on the information they had, they decided that this was the best course of action. Well, sail on, go ahead. You, you know, you, they don't always work out the way we want. But when a department simply, you know, says, eh, you know, this guy's conning us, he's an asshole, let's just go get him. And then we lose an officer over it, you know, and then you say, mm, that wasn't necessary. You know, I, uh, in my book, there's a chapter on the Republic of Texas siege, which is was an anti-government group. And I flew down to help the Texas Rangers. And the guy was a real Richard McLaren, the head of this little group that were held up and they'd taken a hostage. It was a real, a real difficult guy to deal with. And the Rangers were patient initially. And they finally said, you know, they're a very decisive law enforcement agency. And they said, okay, enough of this talk. We're going to go get him. And uh, I asked to speak to the captain, Barry Caver. And I said, Barry, um, can I have a chat with you? And we went off together privately. And I said, and I gave him what I, what became known as the widow speech. And I said, you know, tomorrow when you knock on the door of the widow of one of your officers that got killed today, 
And she asks you, did he have to go in? If you can say there was no other choice, there was no other option, then I said, go ahead. But I think there's some other things we can do to bring them to the table. And if you're open to it, I, I'm happy to discuss those with you. And he kind of turned a bit pale because he's a guy that really cared about his his people and he was a good leader and a good boss. And he said, well, I didn't think about it that way. And, and yeah, but that's the way we always think we're going to prevail. We always think because of our training and our equipment, only the bad guy's going to get hurt. In reality, I can tell you just every single negotiation course I taught at Quantico, there was always a police officer, a visiting, attending police officer that would have a sad story about having lost a tactical officer usually. And when you heard the circumstances under which this tragic loss occurred, almost all the time you'd say, why did you go in? There was not a compelling reason. It's because we were tired. We were cold. We were wet. We didn't want to hand it off to the neighboring jurisdiction, whatever it might be. And to me, it's so tragic when I would hear those stories because it's impatience. It's um, it's not understanding how negotiation works. And, and sadly, some officers have lost their lives because of that. I'm a big believer in utilizing, whenever possible, the discretionary time that we're provided at a scene. Oftentimes, tragic things happen because we don't not we not only don't use the discretionary time that we have, we decrease the discretionary time through the tactics that we use. So, so your book, Stalling for Time, I just kept thinking, man, it's, it, to me, it, you're, you're increasing the discretionary time available to the people that make decisions about what has to be done. That, that's what the negotiator is doing, is affording you additional discretionary time to increase the quality of decisions that can be made if you take advantage of it. Yeah, you know, the, the reason I titled my book that when Random House asked me to write a book, I said, okay, what am I going to call this thing? And and I look back at my early negotiation notes and the first three words on, on my note taking was stall for time. In the medical profession, they say, first, do no harm. Well, in the negotiation profession, if, if nothing else, stall for time because it allows emotions to cool. It allows us to, to assemble and bring more resources to find the landlord to give us the floor plan of the building we have to go in. It allows us to get equipment from the state police that we might need. It allows us to talk to relatives of the perpetrator to tell us how impulsive is he, how does he behave in these tense situations, you know, whatever it might be. All of these, and there's a million points uh, of information like that, not a million, but I mean, there's so many that, that we can gather if we have the time to do it that typically, not always, but typically allows us to achieve a better outcome for all involved. So, and you weigh that against money, budgets. And I know police departments face that all the time, you know, more than the FBI. Ever. I don't think we ever made a decision based on, on money. We're always, always happy to spend the taxpayer's dollars in a crisis. But, um, but for police departments that are doing, you know, big police department that's doing a couple hundred of these things a year, maybe, you know, this thing's tying up our resources, it's tying up the city, it's blocking traffic, it's whatever it is. You know, these things are legitimate factors, but we've got to be careful that we don't let them override our, our, our sound judgment. How many of your resources had to be used up if you have to have a funeral for one of your people? Exactly. You know, where you have to call in neighboring jurisdictions to cover your calls. Well, you know, the way, the way I put it, I, I was always proud to be in the FBI. I'm still proud of the FBI. It is not a perfect outfit, never has been. However, you look at a situation like Waco, that, that will take a generation or more for the FBI to move beyond that. Because, you know, when I was a young FBI agent, I think I mentioned it earlier, the public put us up on a pedestal. I'm a brand new agent and I knock on the door in South Carolina. And I'm looking for this 
a neighbor that used to live next door. And this lady says, oh, my God. She said, can you wait here for a minute? Yes, ma'am. And she goes and gets her kids from the backyard. She says, I just want them to see an FBI agent. They've never met one. Hmm. Well, you know, I got off those steps. I was like 12 feet tall or something like that, you know, because (laughs) that's how the public used to view us. Now, that's changed considerably. And there's no shortage of critics of the FBI now. But what we have to remember is we, we are public servants. And our ability to function, uh, whether FBI, local law enforcement, doesn't matter, is very much dependent upon the goodwill we have with the public. And if we lose that, you know, if we lose their confidence uh, that we have the ability to do things in, in a professional way, it takes an awful lot to get that back. That's the consequences. And going to our conversation, I mean, what price tag do you put on that? I, I don't know that there's there's an amount you could fill in on that blank. I don't know how it's happening, but you're getting smarter and smarter the longer we're talking here, because I, I think that perhaps the, the greatest thing that we've lost as a profession over the past decade or so is the benefit of the doubt from the public. Yeah. Well, and, you know. We all see now all these uh, ubiquitous, it seems, videos of police, you know, engaging in arrests that are later viewed by the public and questioned as to was this shooting righteous? Did they need to do this, that or the other thing? Well, in the old days, we automatically got the benefit of doubt. He's a bad guy. You're the cops. End of story. Well, those days are gone. And now we have to not just uh, depend on that good feeling that the public had for us. You know, we're going to be scrutinized much closer and we have to be prepared for that and, and rise to the occasion. And not only try to try to benefit from from their good opinions, but we have to prove it, reestablish it constantly. Uh, earn it. Yeah, earn it. I've got one more thing before before we wrap things up. And you've mentioned it a couple of times. And it's one of the things that, to be honest with you, I didn't discover fully until later in life. And, and I, to my own detriment, seeing people as people. Uh, the Arbinger Institute, they, they have a book out there called The Outward Mindset, and it says seeing people as people, not as objects, completely changes the course of the interaction that you have with a person. And I believe in law enforcement that when we see people as people rather than objects, it not only makes us safer, but it makes us better prepared to do our job. And you mentioned it. Hey, listen, even douchebags want to be treated with respect and seen. It's impossible to build rapport with somebody that you see as an object. We don't build rapport with objects. We build rapport with people. And it seems that building rapport for a hostage negotiator is something that's really important to be successful in your job. Totally, totally. And um, I say the number one attribute of a negotiator is likability, being perceived by the people we're dealing with as basically a good human being, a genuine likable person. And, you know, and it's important, and, you know, and then we, we talk about community policing and police officers, not just rolling through in the squad car, but getting out and interacting with the public. You know, I, I love when I see these videos of cops in uniform playing basketball with kids on the street. I, I love that sort of stuff. That has an impact. I mean, we're there. We're part of the community. We serve the community. We're not just hostile foreign force that just comes through when when we want to arrest people. And I think we have to get back to that. Uh, Gary, I think that we have gotten away from the the fact that we're public servants and that being a servant doesn't mean less than that's an honorable thing to be a servant for the public. And I couldn't agree with you anymore. Just to wrap things up here. I love those videos too. And to be honest with you for about the first 10 years of my career, I thought they were dumb, (laughs) but the truth of the matter is that doesn't mean that that person is always that way. Yeah. It goes back to the either or, or should it be an and you know, I, I should be able to have those interactions and then be able to take the force that is necessary when I'm called upon yeah. that 
officer that's able to do that is most successful. Yeah. You know, we can always go from negotiations to tactical force. It's very difficult to go from tactical force down to negotiations. So, I mean, if you look at it as a continuum, we should always strive to get cooperation through the most non-confrontational way we, we can and try to get people to comply and do what we want. And the good police officers out there, and which is a majority, are very good at, at those street interactions. But not everybody is. And it's just like our firearms training. We have to devote time and energy. You know, for every hour of tactical training we have, I mean, it's a minuscule amount of communication skills training that most departments engage in. And, and perhaps it should be I'm not saying we should diminish the tactical training, but we should certainly enhance the communication training. If that's an expected response, I think we have to. Otherwise, it's just a roll of the dice. You said it better than I could, but it's easier to talk to somebody into a a pair of handcuffs. And, And that never became more apparent than when I got old and I realized how much easier it was to get hurt and how it took exponentially longer to get better. That, that wasn't necessarily true early in my career. But Gary, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. And I, I appreciate you carving out time for us. It really is an honor for me. Well, uh, thank you guys. I really enjoyed it. It's um, it's it's always fun to, to talk about some of these things. And uh, for those of us uh, focused on law enforcement issues, I think, you know, thinking about this ahead of time and and deciding how we can be better at our craft, at our profession. We can all step up our game. And uh, and I think that's what we should shoot for. No pun intended. <laughs> this episode was even, even better than I thought it was going to be. I hope that in our show notes that you are going to put a link uh, to Gary's book because you said it in jest, but it would be a great gift idea for the law enforcement professional this time of year because it will help you get better at your craft. Also, if you've got a link to that episode that you were talking about, I'd love to see that as well. Yeah, I'll send that to you. And that that book is not just for law enforcement folks, but for everybody. I'm thinking about having Gary fly to Tennessee to be an advocate when I have uh, arguments with Mrs. Hinton and see if he can can get me out of some trouble. I I would tell you, none of this works at home, you know, so uh, just keep that in (laughs) mind. But I also also have a website if anybody wants to check that out. It's just www.garynessneroneword.com and it's got my you know, other podcasts and articles I've written and um, events and so forth on there that if anybody's interested and and they can contact me through there if they wish. When you see the metrics go up, I promise you I'm not stalking you. (laughs) Well, that's great, guys. I really enjoyed it. It's nice to to be a guest on the show and uh, I hope it's worthwhile for everybody that that listens. Yeah, we've reached uh, just the tip of the iceberg with Gary and there's lots more you guys can explore. Again, his book, Stalling for Time, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator. You can find it on his website at GaryNesner.com or it's on Amazon and other uh, book retailers online. We'll put a link to all that in the show notes. You can find all of that and all of our previous episodes right there at our website at Between the Lines with VirtualAcademy.com. Mr. Nesner, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for uh, for being here today and uh, and sharing your experiences with us. You're very welcome. <laughs>